please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We will be looking at chapter 9, finishing off chapter 9 this morning, looking at verse 42 through 50, continuing our sermon series, morning sermon series through the Gospel of Mark. And as I said earlier today, we come to a very sobering passage where Jesus speaks about hell and the importance of us killing sin and leaving hell in the dust. So, with that, let us come to the Lord's word uh, with reverence and awe that God, our living God, has spoken to us. Give now attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Will you come to the Lord in prayer with me? Our Father in heaven, we come to a passage that is most likely not one that we have bookmarked, not one of our favorite passages. This is not a passage that any day soon will replace John 3.16 at any sporting events, but it is in your word, and it is truth, and it is a sobering word. And so I pray, O Father, that we here this day would be sobered by it that you would use it to help us to kill sin in our life and to run to Christ who has died for sin. Do this, we pray, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. When I was a freshman in college, uh, there was a group presentation that was assigned to me in one of my classes at the beginning of the semester. And one, two things you need to know about me in my freshman year of college was I absolutely loathed group presentations, and I was terrified of public speaking. So those two combinations together absolutely horrified me about this assignment that was going to be given at the end of the semester. And so uh, I was filled with fear and trepidation over this assignment, filled with fear and anxiety over this assignment. And so naturally, the way I responded to that terror and trepidation was I simply acted as though the assignment didn't exist. I treated it as though it wasn't a reality in my life. And that actually worked pretty well for my anxiousness, for my worry. I treated the assignment like it didn't exist. But of course, the day came when I had to give my presentation, and as you can imagine, I did wonderful. 
Just kidding. I did terrible. <laughs> I wish I did do wonderful. In fact, I, no, I don't wish I did wonderful. I'm glad I did poorly because I learned a lesson from it. I ended up embarrassing myself in front of my peers, in front of my friends. I ended up letting down my other group members. I ended up embarrassing myself in front of my teacher, and my grade took a significant hit for it. And I remember thinking, if only I would have treated throughout the whole semester, if only I would have treated that assignment like it was a reality, like it existed. Now, of course, I tell that story because I think we often treat the subject of hell in the same way I treated that assignment in my freshman year of college. The subject of hell causes fear. It causes trepidation. It causes worry. It causes anxiety. And the very thought of it just terrifies us. And so we respond by acting as though it doesn't exist, as though it's not a reality. And that does work. It does keep the anxiousness and the worry of hell aside. But just like with my assignment, no matter how much we act as though hell doesn't exist, it never changes the fact that hell is a reality. And Jesus here speaks of hell in the most stark and terrifying way. He says it is an unquenchable fire, a place where the worm does not die, really meaning that it is eternal torment. It is not destructionism. It is not annihilationism, where the belief that hell is where our bodies and souls are just completely annihilated and there will be no suffering. You just cease to exist. It is not a temporary purging of sin. It's not a temporary judgment where everyone will eventually be with the Lord. No, time and time again, Scripture teaches us that hell is an eternal torment, a place of eternal suffering and pain. And Jesus here in this passage in chapter 9, verse 42 through 50, speaks of hell in this way, in such stark and terrifying ways, so that we would deal with hell's reality now, rather than when it is too late. And the way Jesus teaches us to deal with that reality of hell now is by being in the business of killing sin in our life what the old theologians used to call mortifying sin in our life. We are to be in the business of killing sin in our life. And so for the remainder of our time, I want us to look at three realities connected to the importance of killing sin in our life. First, the importance of killing sin in others, verse 42 Second, the importance of killing sin in our bodies, verse 43 through 49. And third, and finally, the, th- the importance of killing sin in perseverance, verse 50. First, the importance of killing sin in others, verse 42. Verse 42, read there with me. Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he, were th- he was thrown into the sea. Here, Jesus refers to these disciples causing little ones to sin. Now, there is some debate as to who it is Jesus is referring to here in this passage. And there's really one of two options 
Some will say that Jesus is referring to the little child that Jesus has placed in the midst of the disciples. You recall back in verse 36, he has placed a child in the midst of the disciples. And some believe that these little ones is referring to this child that is in the midst of the disciples as Jesus is speaking to them. However, actually, I lean towards uh, the belief that who Jesus is speaking of is the man we read of last week in verse 38 through 41. Uh, You recall last week there was that man that cast out demons in the name of Christ. He did a good work in the name of Christ. And John and his disciples tried to stop him from doing that good work. And so given what we saw last week, John and the disciples essentially causing this man to sin, this believer in Christ, to not do this good work, I think it's best uh, to see these little ones that Jesus is referring to, uh, to that man in the previous passage. Now, whoever Jesus is referring to here, I think the point that Jesus is making is pretty clear. And that is that our actions affect fellow believers, that we are to a certain degree responsible for how our brothers and sisters in Christ live out their lives before the God of our salvation. It's interesting here in verse 42, Jesus will say, cause one of these little ones to sin. That word sin could be easily translated stumble which brings up the idea of what is often called the stumbling block principle in Scripture, which is uh, really laid out in 1 Corinthians 8 by Paul. There in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and within the Corinthian church, you have a separation of strong Christians and weak Christians. And these strong Christians, uh, having this newfound liberty in Christ, are taking liberty in doing certain acts that offends weaker Christians who still aren't aware that they are able to uh, participate in certain activities now that they are in Christ. These stronger Christians are practicing their Christian liberty with arrogance and sloppiness so as to burden the conscience of these weak Christians, essentially causing these weak Christians to sin against their conscience. And Paul will conclude in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. We are not merely individual Christians sitting off on our island where we wave to our other Christian friends on their little individual island where we say to them, you, you worry about your walk with the Lord, I'll worry about my walk with the Lord, and hopefully we'll see each other someday at the end of the road. That is not how the Christian life is depicted in the New Testament. What we see in the New Testament time and time again is when we are called to Christ, we are called into, as Paul says in Galatians 6, the household of faith, the family of God who he will liken to a regular household, to a regular family in 1 Timothy 2. Now, let me ask you a question. What does a well-functioning family household look like? What does a mature, well-functioning, happy, joyful 
family household look like? It looks like each member, from grandma to grandpa, from mother to father, from sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, looking out for one another, leading good examples for the other members of the family to follow. Think for a moment of parents who catch their oldest son doing some stupid act of disobedience. Now imagine that oldest son participated in that act all by himself. Certainly, he's going to be punished. But imagine if he takes his little brother with him in that stupid act. How much more severe would the punishment be? What is he going to hear from his parents? You are supposed to be a good example for your little brother to follow. Brothers and sisters, when we enter into the household of faith, when we become believers in Christ and enter into the family of God, our Father in heaven and our elder brother Christ says to us, you are to be good examples for your brothers and sisters in Christ. How is your conduct? How are your actions? How are your words affecting the people in this room today? How are they affecting the family of God that you have been called into? Are your words and your actions, is your conduct causing your brothers and sisters to kill sin in their life? To live well before the Lord? Or is it causing them to stumble? in their walk with the Lord, with the God of our salvation. What we read here in verse 42 is that there is serious judgment on us if we cause each other to stumble. We are to be an example of godliness for each other and lead by example so that the body of Christ will be healthy and holy and live before our Lord and our Savior well. We are to kill sin in others, in our brothers and sisters. We are to be an aid and a help to each other as we fight off sin in our lives. Second, the importance of killing sin in our bodies, verse 43 through 49. The importance of killing sin in our bodies, verse 43 through 48 Jesus describes particular body parts that are to be killed, that are to be mortified. Now, to be sure, Jesus is here speaking in hyperbolic language. He is using intense hyperbolic language in order to drive home the solemn necessity that is ours to be in the business of killing sin in our life, in order to drive home the fact that we are to mortify the sin of the flesh. And what is of note, I think, here in verse 43 through 48 is that Jesus is referring to our physical bodies. He is referring to the parts of our physical body. The doctrine of man, as it comes out of Scripture, teaches us that we are made body and soul. It is the body and soul that makes up the man. And that body and soul has fallen into sin and condemnation in Adam and in our own sin. 
And God, in sending his son, redeems us, and he redeems the whole person. He redeems us both body and soul. He buys us back to himself so that not only our souls belong to God and to Christ, but our very bodies as well. Our bodies, our body parts, our eyes, our feet, our nose, our ears are to be in service to God, the one who now owns us and who has bought us in the blood of his only begotten son. Romans 6.13, Paul will refer to this same thought. He will say, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. There, the members that Paul is speaking of is our physical body parts. Our physical body are to be used as instruments to glorify God in our lives. When we are called to God through Christ, We are called to use our bodies in service to him and no other. So let me ask you today, brothers and sisters, how is your eye? Does your eye belong to God? What are you using your eyes in service for? What are you watching? What are you watching on television? What are you looking at on your computer screen that would bring shame to you if it was found out in the family of God? Is your eye in service to the Lord? How is your foot? Where are your feet leading you? What places are you being led to that you think if you go, you'll just observe and you won't actually participate in the sin, but you know full well if you were honest with yourself for one moment that if you go to that place, that temptation will pull you in and you are not strong enough. How is your feet? Where are your feet leading you? How is your hand? Hand is often used in Scripture as a symbol for our actions, for our activities in life. How is your hand? What activities are you participating in today that would bring shame before the Lord of glory and before your God who has bought you by his son? Now, to be sure, to cut off hands and feet and eyes is imagery that tells us that killing sin is a very painful process. It is a painful process. Killing sin in our lives hurts. It's such an odd thing, isn't it, when you become a Christian, when you start to see the good of Scripture, you see Scripture as God's word to you, and you hate sin, but at the same time, you you love it. You love the pleasures of it. You love the instant gratification of it. And that process of sanctification as the Spirit is poured out into our hearts and we seek to do as Paul tells us to do and kill off the flesh, it is painful because we sin because we are sinners and we like sin, but we hate it at the same time. And to put it to death, it hurts. It is painful. I think that's what Jesus is referring to in verse 49, a very difficult verse to interpret. 
But when he says that the disciples will be salted with fire, I think he is saying there the process of sanctification, the process of being conformed more and more into the image of Christ hurts. It hurts. It brings fiery trials. It brings fiery trials out in the world as we seek to live for God and not for the world, and the world persecutes us for it. And it has internal struggles and internal pains as we seek to put to death the indwelling sin that remains within us. There's pain in killing sin. There's pain in becoming holy as our Lord is holy and as we are called to be. But notice the simple logic that Jesus uses here. It is so very simple. The pain of killing off sin pales in comparison to the pain of hell. The temporary pain of saying no to that which brings instant gratification into our lives pales in comparison to the eternal pain of hell where there will be no longer any gratification, any longer any pleasures whatsoever in sin. Jesus' logic is so painfully simple. Killing sin in your life, that temporary suffering and pain it brings, pales in comparison to the eternal sufferings of hell. Now in Romans 8, Paul will play on this same theme of suffering for the Christian, but he will look on it from a different angle. He will look at it from the angle of heaven rather than from the angle of hell. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For Jesus, he takes the theme of suffering, the temporary sufferings of this world, and he compares it to the eternal sufferings of hell. But for Paul, he takes the sufferings, the temporary sufferings, and he compares it to the eternal weight of glory. That is heaven. Teaching us, teaching us that the same road that leads to heaven is the same road that leads us away from hell. The same road that leads us to heaven is the same road that leads us away from hell. And that road is the road of killing sin in our life, of suffering for the sake of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you today, if you are running toward heaven without at the same time running away from hell, you have been given the wrong directions. Those are not biblical directions. If you want to run toward heaven, you must run from hell. I think, of course, of Christian and John Bunyan's famous classic, Pilgrim's Progress, you've read that book, you know at the beginning of the book, Christian will arise from this dream that has terrified him. And what does he do? He runs away from the city of destruction and he runs toward the celestial city. He runs away from damnation and he runs toward glory. And on the way, what is he doing? He is slaying sin in his life. 
He is suffering for the sake of Christ. Not perfectly. He stumbles. It's imperfect. But he's suffering for the sake of Christ. He is slaying sin in his life, running from hell toward heaven. We cannot truly love the glory of heaven if we do not hate the sin that brings hell. And we are called to take the sin in our life and do, as John Owen will say in mortification of sin, grab it by the throat, choke it, suffocate it, give it no room to breathe because we love the glory and the peace of heaven. And we hate, we hate, and we loathe the pain and the darkness of hell. Kill sin in your bodies. Be in the business of mortifying sin in your life and run and flee from hell and run toward heaven. Third and finally, the importance of killing sin in perseverance, the importance of killing sin in order to persevere in our Christian lives. Verse 50, Jesus will say, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, in order for us to understand this passage, we need to understand that in the ancient world, they didn't have freezers. So the only way they could preserve their meat and their food was through salt. In fact, uh, one historian famously said in ancient Rome, what would the world do without salt? It was by far the number one commodity in the ancient world. And in ancient Palestine, the salt was often taken from the Dead Sea. And a lot of times it would contain impurities in it. And unless it was processed and purified, that salt would be rendered useless as a preservative for food. And so what is being said by Jesus here is that killing sin in our life serves as a preservative in the Christian life. Serves to keep us from spoiling from rotting due to sin. But if we are not killing sin, we will lose our saltiness and we will be rendered useless. Jesus is saying to these disciples who have displayed sinful pride, we've seen it over the last few weeks, they've displayed sinful pride, they've, you know, they've had jealousy among their own ranks, one-upmanship, And he is saying to these disciples who have displayed this sinful pride, pettiness, and jealousy, that if they are to be salt to a spoiling world, they must be salty. They must be purifying themselves. They must be in the business of purifying themselves from their sin in order for them to be salt to a spoiling world. The disciples are going to be called by Jesus to go out into a world that hates Christ and proclaim Christ to it. They're going to be persecuted by their own people, by their own Jewish communities. They're going to be flogged and beaten by the Jewish high priests, by the leaders of their own people. They're going to be persecuted by Roman emperors, Roman governors, Roman citizens. And they cannot hope to persevere if they are filled with sin 
and with strife within the family of God if they are not in the business of killing sin in their life. They cannot hope to persevere through the eye of the storm that Jesus is calling them into. When we are called to Christ, we are called to be light to a world that loves darkness, to a world and to a darkness that every chance it can get will seek to pull us into that darkness. And we will not be able to persevere in the storm if we are not in the business of killing sin in our lives. A person who doesn't practice killing sin in their life is much like a soldier who goes out to war without ever being properly trained, without ever uh, being taken through boot camp, having no idea what it is like to fight in a war and not being trained to fight in the war. And what is that soldier prepared for? He is prepared for defeat and death. A person who isn't in the practice of killing sin in their life will eventually be defeated by the battle that we are called to go out into, into a world that is dark and spoiling. Because we have not trained ourselves properly, because we have not put on the armor of Christ, the helmet of salvation, we go out defenseless, And like the soldier not trained, we too are only ready for defeat and for death. Brothers and sisters, do you want to be salt to a spoiling world? Do you want to be light to a dark world? Then be in the business of killing sin in your life. And be prepared for the call of our Lord, our Master, our Captain, our General, who calls us out into the eye of the storm, into this dark world, to be salt. We are called to be salt, but we must be salty. We must be purified and processed within in order for us to be light to a dark world. Now, I want to close by saying I know that this is a hard passage. It's a hard passage for me. As I was preparing for this passage, I fell under the conviction of my own sin. And I think when we look at this passage, part of the reason it is so difficult is because it brings an image of Christ that is not the loving and merciful Savior that we have grown to love, that we have come to enjoy, and that we have come to rest in. What I want to say to you today is that I think quite the opposite is being displayed here in this passage. I think we see the love and the mercy of Christ here in this passage. Think for a moment what it is that Jesus is in the process of doing. He is in the process of going to Jerusalem, where he will go to die on a cross and face the very fires of hell he speaks of here. And he knows it. Back in chapter 8, verse 31 through 32, Mark tells us that Jesus spoke plainly to his disciples about the death he was going to receive in Jerusalem, about the cross he was going to bear. What is Jesus doing here in warning these disciples and telling us to flee from our sin? He is saying, flee from sin because I know its end. 
it ends with a cross in Calvary. It ends with the eternal Son of God who has enjoyed eternal fellowship with God the Father, saying those mysterious and most haunting words in all of Scripture at the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It causes the Lord of glory, the spotless Lamb of God, to be crushed by God the Father. It causes him to sweat beads of blood in Gethsemane over terror and fear about the cup of wrath that is about to be poured out over him. Christ does not warn us here as some harsh dictator who doesn't understand us. Rather, he is lovingly and mercifully saying, flee from sin so that you will not have to endure the hell that I have had to endure. Flee from sin so that you will not have to endure the cross as I have endured the cross. In a moment, we will be partaking in the Lord's Supper. And in that supper, we are invited to flee from sin and run to the one who has taken on the fires of hell for us in its fullness. Hate sin, kill sin, and run to Christ who has killed sin, both its guilt and its power over our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we transition now into the celebration and observance of the Lord's Supper, we pray, O God, that you would prepare our hearts now to receive Christ afresh so that we would lean on him who has taken on the fires and the pains and the sufferings of hell for us so that in him we become your children and walk in the power of your Holy Spirit, able now to flee from sin and run to heaven. Might your spirit meet us in our hearts now as we seek to take and to eat and to drink and to feed on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>